0: Howdy folks, AJ here with Pindrop World News, and I'm just going to give us a brief introduction before we get into this conversation. So first of all, the conversation is going to be taking place between myself, my co-producer, Diego Austin, and the main guest, Dr. Ned Lazarus. So some context, as you're likely already aware, on October 7th, the group Hamas, based out of the Gaza Strip, launched an unprecedented attack against southern Israel. This attack included the breaking of security barriers and their own militants paragliding over the security barrier into towns in Israel. They reached as far as 15 miles outside of the boundaries of the Gaza Strip, took what is now estimated to be about 200 hostages back into Gaza with them, and there has been rocket fire exchanged between Hamas and their associates in Gaza and the Israeli forces ever since. Now, there are obviously a lot more complications there, including the fact that Israel has for about two weeks declared its intention to conduct a ground invasion of Gaza and to eliminate Hamas. But we will save a lot of that for the interview. More broader context about the Arab-Israeli conflict might be warranted, though. It stretches back about a century or so, depending on how exactly you want to count it. And we'll start our brief recap with the Oslo Accords in the 1990s. Negotiated by Norwegian leaders and President Bill Clinton in the United States, this agreement uh, laid out a provision that would allow the West Bank to be uh, split up into sort of zones of shared control, with some areas being controlled fully by a Palestinian authority, some being controlled fully by Israeli forces and others having a mix of the two. It also laid the groundwork for what we see now in Gaza, where eventually Israel would completely hand over control to the Palestinian Authority. Now, that did happen indeed in the early 2000s, but an unexpected result after elections in 2006 for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza was the victory of the hard-right Hamas political group, which it should be noted is labeled by the United States as well as the European Union as a terrorist organization. After winning the election, Hamas kicked out the more moderate Fatah party that still to this day controls the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and assumed essentially full control over Gaza. A few years prior, Israel had removed its settlers from who were in the Gaza Strip from the area and relocated them elsewhere. And essentially let the Palestinian Authority, or as it were now Hamas, have complete autonomy over how it conducted its own internal affairs. But they did strictly control access in and out of Gaza. So what happens after Hamas takes control? Well, a lot of miniature wars take place. Hamas, whether you call it a terrorist organization or not, is a militant group, and they generally espouse a narrative of the river to the sea, liberating the holy land from the Israeli government and declaring an Arab-Palestinian state. As a result, there have been a lot of rockets exchanged between Israeli forces and Hamas forces, and it should be noted that a lot of these Hamas rockets, about 20% or so, don't actually leave the Gaza Strip because they are largely homemade or something close to it. Hamas uh, militants have also launched incendiary balloons over the security barrier into Israel. The largest conflict between the two took place in 2014, but the most recent sort of flare-up or miniature war took place in 2021. Now, those miniature wars have been continuing, but what we're seeing right now, of course, is something unprecedented. Really, a full-scale war, and the largest war fought by a Palestinian Palestinian, uh, agent, a Palestinian entity, without the support of other Arab states. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not alone. They are largely believed to be supported by Iran, and there is an ongoing debate as to how much Iran was aware that this attack was going to happen, and to what extent they actively supported this attack from happening but it is broadly understood that Iran supports Hamas. It should also be noted with the timing of the attack, not only did it happen on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the last full-scale war that the region has seen, but it also happens as Saudi Arabia, the largest of the Arab countries, was just about set to declare normalization with the state of Israel, A lot of Arab states, in fact most of them, still don't have formal diplomatic relations with Israel. And Saudi Arabia, being probably the most powerful of these Arab states, and being culturally and religiously significant, housing the most important sites in Islam, well, it posed a big threat to the political security and balance of power from the perspective of Iran. So it is hypothesized, although not exactly sure, that this might have spurred Iran on, to encourage this attack on the side of Hamas. Now, a lot of that's speculation, but that context established. Let's get into the show. Diego, take it away.
1: Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to our panel. Today, we are interviewing Professor Ned Lazarus. He's a professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and a teaching fellow at the Israel Institute he has evaluated peacebuilding initiatives for usaid uh, usip the department of state and the eu and he was the middle east program director for seeds for peace out of jerusalem from 1996 to 2004 so welcome professor lazarus it's great to have you on
2: thank you so much diego it's a pleasure to be here
1: and of course since october 7 we've seen some very horrific events in israel palestine civilians on both sides have died. And it's, I mean, it's, I, I spent about eight months there. I've become quite familiar with the history of the conflict. And I mean, these are some of the like most horrifying things I've seen on, on par with things like Dari Yassin and Sabra and Shatila. And I, I kind of wanted to get your own perspective on things that are going on because of course the reaction, not just in Israeli and Palestinian society, but around the world, I think has been, very polarized and a lot of people are picking sides. But I think that you, um, as well as me, I think we have very unique perspectives in that um, we've both interacted quite deeply, both with Israeli and Palestinian society. And I mean, having been in that part of the world, I think that's a very rare perspective to have in that context. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering what your reactions have been to this situation.
2: Um, as you said, Uh, This is, uh, you know, kind of murder of civilians on an unprecedented scale, even for uh, a conflict uh, that has been a violent uh, uh, conflict with a terrible history of violence, uh, massacres, attacks uh, that have killed civilians, uh, both, you know, uh, let's say unintentionally in terms of military uh, strikes or intentionally uh, in terms of, uh, terror attacks, uh, 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 and, uh, this, these events are really unprecedented, uh, uh, in, in scale. Um, I lived there, as you said, in Jerusalem, uh, during the period of the Second Intifada, uh, from 2000, from late 2000 to 2004, uh, and during that period, uh, we saw the worst uh direct israeli palestinian violence that had occurred since 1948 since the the fur you know the establishment of israel the uh, uh the nakba the the uh, dispossession of of uh, 700,000 or more palestinians uh the war of all the arab states against israel uh so the you know the, the second intifada was uh catastrophic uh and it resulted in the loss of about a thousand uh Israeli lives and more than three thousand Palestinian lives uh and that happened over a course of four you know four to five years and at that time that you know it was unprecedentedly horrible so this in you know there were more than a thousand lives lost on the first in the first few hours Uh, This began with a uh, brutal uh, and just massive scale attack by Hamas, uh, uh, which caught Israeli defenses completely by surprise. Uh, And then this isn't, it's not an isolated terror attack. I have some, you know, an Israeli general speaking to the radio yesterday said this really wasn't a terror attack. This was, uh, you know, this was more on the scale of a military attack. Several thousand people uh, broke through uh, the, all of the defenses that Israel places around Gaza, uh, and then proceeded uh, to attack towns, kibbutzim, uh, cities in that area, and to murder civilians in their homes. Uh, uh, more than uh, you know, I think the death toll is now above 1,400 people in Israel, and uh, and the vast majority of those are civilians. Um, uh, as well as kidnapping two hundred or more uh, people. Uh, uh, so this is this is sort of if you took all of the attacks and massacres and hostage taking and uh, that have happened over decades but managed to do them in a, you know in one day. Right. So this is an entirely different scale. The Israeli response so far is not different in kind from previous Israeli uh, uh attacks on hamas and gaza or offensives against hamas and gaza but it is quite it is it is on a tremendous scale and it has already resulted in more than 2500 deaths in gaza uh and uh and that and that number has grown uh because of the strike on the hospital yesterday uh which uh, uh you know uh there are disputed accounts of responsibility for it uh it does appear that there is footage that makes it seem that it was a failed missile uh, attack by Islamic Jihad that hit the hospital in Gaza. But in any case, it is this horrible conflict that placed so many civilians in that hospital. Uh, uh, so it is it is in the context that has that has uh, resulted from uh, the, the 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 Hamas attack and the sudden and the war that's you know come afterwards that uh, that led to so many people being in that in that spot. So what we've seen is a you know uh, just a, again uh, an unprecedented uh, uh, attack by Hamas, uh, followed by uh, a you know massive aerial bombardment by Israel, uh, and we're already looking at fatality figures and casualty figures that are more that are that are larger than uh, you know any a number of is of Israel's wars put together
1: and i i definitely agree that this is unprecedented in the in the brutality and the amounts of deaths um but i i do um want to go back to you mentioning the second intifada because um if if we're trying to predict how both israeli and palestinian society would would react to something like this in the future i think that's the closest thing we have Um, because the Second Intifada saw Israeli society, I think, transition from a point where um, peace was seen as a possibility to the point where people became greatly disillusioned with that. And this, um, as we can see now, this has kind of spurred the rise of the far-right parties like and Religious Zionism that are not conducive to peace. And on the Palestinian side, um, the Second Intifada was met with Operation Defensive Shield. And um, I mean, traveling in Nablus and Jenny night, I, I pretty much interacted with young men who grew up in the rubble of this operation and felt equally disillusioned about the prospects for peace. And I, I, I think the the anger and the disillusionments that both sides feel towards the other group comes from a very human place of pain and loss. Um, and I I think that this type of event would only intensify that. And, and I'm wondering, do, do you think um, first, do you think there's even a remote chance of peace after the events we just witnessed because, I mean, even before that people were quite pessimistic and I don't really have, I'm not very optimistic to the future, to be honest.
2: Um, so as you as you correctly said, uh, uh, during the 1990s, there were historic uh, uh, agreements between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. Uh, that led to the creation of the Palestinian Authority, uh, the withdrawal of uh, the IDF from Palestinian cities in the West Bank and from much of Gaza. Uh, and negotiations began on what was called the Final Status Agreement, a, real, a, a full peace treaty. Um, and there were, you know, formal relations established between Israel and uh, the Palestinian leadership for the first time in history. Uh, so these uh you know there there was certainly this was certainly a time of hope. this also led to a peace treaty between Israel and Jordan uh, and to the establishment of some level of diplomatic relations with a number of other Arab countries uh, uh there was some momentum uh, uh and and it seemed that the future could certainly uh you know be more peaceful than 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 the past um uh there were obviously events that led to the failure of that peace process. Uh, And Hamas played a central role in that as well, uh, along with extremism, extreme right uh, opposition in Israeli society, Uh, uh, and in both cases of Hamas and of the extreme right in Israel, violent opposition. Uh, An Israeli extreme rightist assassinated uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister who had led these first moves toward peace with the Palestinians. Uh, uh, a Jewish terrorist, Baruch Goldstein, uh, murdered 29 Muslim worshipers in uh, in Hebron at a contested, shared slash contested holy site, the Cave of the Patriarchs. Uh, these ha- had tremendously negative uh, effects on the peace process. Uh, and Hamas, uh, from the very beginning, uh, escalated its violent opposition and uh, Uh, You know, right after the Oslo agreements were signed, Hamas kidnapped uh, uh, and killed an Israeli soldier, uh, Nachshon Wachsman, and uh, by 1994, Hamas was already engaged in a suicide bombing campaign uh, that continued throughout the 1990s uh, and took hundreds of lives, uh, as well as engaging in occasional violent uh, clashes with the newly established Palestinian Authority. Uh, Because Hamas's goal is to replace uh, Fatah, its rival party and the Palestinian Authority, and become the uncontested leader uh, of the Palestinian national movement and to lead it in the direction of Islamism. Uh, And uh, so there, you know, every time there's movement towards peace, there is a backlash from, uh, you know, powerful factions among both peoples, uh, who who oppose that agenda, who have a maximalist agenda uh, in terms of the territory, uh, and often it's mixed with a uh, an agenda in which they'd like to see uh, uh, you know, a, a more religious uh, form of uh, state. Um, uh, and so those those parties uh, you know have have in the past. and what we're seeing now has may have some degree of that as well. Uh, now, Israeli-Palestinian peace has been a remote prospect for a long time. Uh, as you said correctly, the Second Intifada and the horrible escalation of violence that occurred, the, the, the massive wave of suicide bombings, uh, the massive Israeli m- military operations uh, in the West Bank uh, and Gaza, uh, Defensive Shield was the largest one, as, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, which, you know, to disclaim thousands of lives on both sides and really destroyed uh, trust or a sense that they could uh, live in peace. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, uh, there were negotiations afterwards. Uh, so uh, th- this didn't this wasn't the the final nail in the coffin, but it it began a process uh, certainly where there was, you know no longer trust in the intentions of the other side um uh and and the parties that supported peace became less popular um but uh you know in as we know uh there have been there's been a sort of different peace process or diplomatic process that has gained some momentum uh in recent years and that's of normalizing relations between Israel and some of the Arab states uh that had previously not had official relations with Israel Uh, So we know that the 2020 uh, Abraham Accords led to normalized relations between the United Arab Emirates, uh, 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 sorry, Morocco, um, Bahrain, uh, and Sudan, maybe, uh, because Sudan is an unstable country that's in the midst of multiple military coups, and it's not really clear but the, the the important ones are you know the other three. So that was a major step, and then suddenly in recent months there had been a lot of talk uh, about uh, negotiations and the and the growing prospect of a normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, and that would be it. That would be a major strategic development. Saudi Arabia is an enormously important and powerful, wealthy, uh, religiously symbolic. Country uh, in the Arab and Muslim world, and for Israel to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia would be uh, a, a, a major step. the The other the other accords are an important uh, uh, step, but nothing not 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 nearly the same level of importance as this would be. And so that is one of the possible motives. Many people have asked recently, you know, why now? Why did Hamas uh, engage in this? You know, daring. Uh, uh, and and horrifically deadly uh, attack at this time. There are other motives as well, but one of the motives may have been to derail, uh, uh, you know, those negotiations with Saudi Arabia, uh, which are threatening to Iran, which is one of Hamas's main uh, patrons. Um, and, uh, you know, in that sense, there would be nothing unusual about that. Hamas uh, has been successful. Uh, again, with the you know, uh, it's not like they talk to each other about it, but 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 extreme right factions on both sides, uh, you know, have violently derailed uh, you know peace processes in the past. Uh, so that in that sense, it would be uh, a continuation of that pattern.
1: And I I certainly agree with what you're saying about the the motives for this because I mean, of course, I don't think Hamas. I think Hamas knows that they're going to suffer very heavy losses and I I think they would have only done this if they thought they if they felt like they were in a position where it would be worse not to for their strategic goals and I do think it probably is related to the Saudi Israel thing and um I mean now you you mentioned the the growth of extremist groups on both sides especially after the Second Intifada and I'm wondering um well I, I think that Israel Israeli and Palestinian politics are put in an, a strange position now where I think I would normally predict and I mean, I would now predict that these events are going to cause even more extremism on both sides. But at the same time, this is the first time in which these extremist groups on both sides. So religious Zionism and Asma Yehudits and also I'm not equating them to this, but, you know, extremist groups on the other side, like Hamas, have been in power um, and it hasn't really yielded positive fruit. So I'm also wondering if these groups would catch the blame and I'm wondering what you think is going to happen in that regard.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent uh, that's an excellent question. Um, uh, you know, uh, there, there have been other. This is a different context, but let's say, uh, you know, in uh, uh, in in Egypt, for example, uh, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood won an election after the uh, revolution that overthrew uh, Hosni Mubarak in 2011, and you know, sort of putting putting them in charge and giving them governmental responsibility was in some ways uh, a, a good way for them to fail and lose popular support right away. Uh, and uh, they were overthrown in a military coup, not in a democratic election, unfortunately. Uh, but that coup was at the time very popular uh, among Egyptians and was supported. Unfortunately, it has been you know, led to just the reestablishment of the autocratic military regime, uh, probably even more repressive than before. Um, but unfortunately that's been the pattern in almost any of the, uh, the countries, you know, there, we've seen, it's really been a, a tragic, uh, time the 21st century, uh, in, 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 the Middle East, uh, you know, hopes for peace, uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, hopes for democracy after the 2011, uh, Ar- Ar- Arab spring, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, j- it's just been, uh, a tragically disillusioning, uh, time these uh, the you know that I've been following the politics of the region um now uh that's let's get back to your very good question um uh first we, I think we as you said you know uh, uh the, the, both obviously Israel and the Palestinians are very different political spheres uh so let's talk about it one uh you know one at a time um in Israeli politics as you said uh this attack comes when Israel has uh, its most, uh, you know, far right government ever, uh, uh, which includes two parties who are, you know, one, one party which was really banned from running for the Knesset for, you know, most of recent history. Israel has a law that says a party that openly incites to racism. As well as a party that denies the legitimacy of Israel to exist as a Jewish and democratic state, those parties can be banned from running for the parliament.
1: On the Israeli side, you're referring to Kach.
2: I'm referring to Kach exactly. Kach, Kahanachai, any yeah. of those organizations. So Itamar Ben Gvir is a Kahanist. Yes, he is from that movement. Uh, uh, he is, uh, uh, you know, he has been an activist in that racist. Uh, movement, um, you know, since he was a teenager. Uh, He is remembered for proudly, uh, you know, uh, attacking the limousine in which Prime Minister Rabin was driving, pulling the hood ornament off, and then showing it off to the cameras and saying, we got to Rabin's car, we can get to Rabin. This was a month before the assassination. Um, So he, you know, his background as as an extremist is very uh, long and clear, uh, and he was, you know, even the even the right wing Prime Minister Netanyahu, even further right, would have nothing to do with him. For decades, he was considered completely unkosher, uh, uh, even by people on the very far right. Uh, but Prime Minister Netanyahu, after he was indicted uh, and went on trial, and he is still on trial for corruption, became desperate. And Netanyahu, you know, tried to win an election so that he would maintain his status as prime minister, which is very important to possibly getting himself out of his trial. Uh, And it led to this period of political deadlock in which Israel ran four elections and each one had inconclusive results. And Netanyahu could not win, but the opposition also could, could not really win because the opposition, they all agree they don't want Netanyahu, but they don't agree about anything else. Uh, And so there was this period, there were were five elections run in less than four years. In the last election, Netanyahu learned his lesson and he brought in the extreme right elements and demanded that they run together. they were you know his side was very disciplined they didn't lose any votes they and he you know this is similar to donald trump by the way who also mobilized elements that really were considered uh you know not not legitimate for american politics before um uh and trump and netanyahu you know have a Long friendship. Now they're not friends anymore, apparently. But you know, uh, in any case, I, I I certainly think they you know they pay attention to each other's uh, examples. Uh, so Netanyahu succeeded. He he you know the, the, this was a successful maneuver in terms of electoral politics. Uh, the left also uh, you know made some terrible strategic moves. Not the left. There is no the left is very small. The center, uh, you know, center left. Um, and so Netanyahu, one, has a 64 out of 120 seat majority, which includes and depends on Itamar Ben-Gavir and, you know, extreme right elements. Um, uh, and that government is extremely controversial. It was the minute that that it was sworn in, but it actually made itself much more so by immediately trying to pass... Uh, uh, A massive set of legislation, package of legislation that it called a judicial reform, uh, but is actually a change in the constitutional structure of governance in the country, uh, and it would remove the only checks on the power of an elected government to do whatever it wants. Uh, And this turned out to be a huge strategic, a colossal strategic mistake, uh, uh, because it provoked The largest sustained protest movement in the history of the country and essentially mobilized much of the Israeli population, uh, which previously had been talked about as sort of apathetic and, you know, not, not, you know, they've given up on on politics. Uh, So it mobilized massive street demonstrations. At one point, uh, a study found that at least 20% of the population of the country. Had protested against the government in the last month, um, so and this hamstrung their attempt to get this judicial reform through. In the end, they've gotten one small piece of the legislation through, and even that is now in the Supreme Court, which may declare it unconstitutional. In any case, that uh, you know that government was already extremely unpopular. Uh, election polls that were taken before this attack showed that government losing, the, you know, if there, if an election were held today, they would lose their majority uh, very, very significantly. Um, so they were already controversial uh, and already a large part of the population did not wanna see their faces anymore. And now after October 7th, they are responsible for, without any question, the worst failure in the history of Israeli government and, and military. They're not solely, you know, not solely, and they will try to put the blame on, you know, the, the army, on the heads of the security services, uh, et cetera. I don't think that's going to work. I think that the public right now in Israel is very united around, you know, the idea that they need to fight a war and they need to to, you know, help all of the people who've been driven out of their homes and who have lost their families there's a lot there's a large mobilization of Israeli society. Uh, there's you know a, a lot of discourse of unity. But even within that, there I'm hearing in the media all the time expressions of absolute rage uh, at the government. Uh, uh, every time a minister is interviewed, even the the journalists are are you know after them, you know, for take you know, when are you going to take responsibility for your failure? Uh, uh and and you know when when ministers go around in the country that's been happening for a while but now it's still happening people shout at them they shout shame 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 at them uh uh so uh so i don't this is uh, i i do think this will lead eventually to the end uh, of this government uh and and probably to at the very least uh netanyahu being out of power no one should no one can ever Eulogize him. He is the political equivalent of a zombie. Like he can never be killed. He always comes back. Um, uh, but I think he's certainly going to have at least uh, to be out of power for a while, and and maybe maybe worse than that because this is a disaster. Uh, you know, the, the the Hamas attack. Obviously, it's partly Hamas was both very uh, you know disciplined and clever and strategic. Uh, and then also in, you know, ethical terms, just absolutely uh, a- a- appalling, murderous, uh, 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 you know, not, you can't use enough words for it. Uh, but, you know, the the Israeli defense is completely collapsed. Uh, it's an it's a stunning failure, uh, a dangerous failure. It invites it invites other. Uh, parties such as Hezbollah or, or or others that are hostile to Israel to try their hand at the same thing in the future. Um, so it is a, it's a you know and and Israel is a country obsessed with security. So you know I I, I don't see in any way how uh, Netanyahu and this government uh, survive. The previous example, the Yom Kippur War in which Egypt and Syria managed a massive surprise attack that broke through Israeli defenses, shocked the country and caused, uh, you know, hundreds of casualties right away. Uh, You know, that is considered the, that before this, before October 7th, that was considered the greatest failure in the history of the state. Uh, And this year was the 50th anniversary and the Israeli media was full of interviews and investigations and, you know, uh, uh, and, and so, you know, that 50 years later, that was still something people were talking about and that led to the collapse of the labor party's dominance over Israeli politics. So I, I absolutely think, as you said, uh, that in, you know, whatever happens in the war, uh, uh, and we have no idea what's going to happen in that war, uh, you know, the, the this is going to lead to the end of that government. I do not know what's going to replace it. Um, and I and, and and I'm yeah I don't know what's going to replace it. Um, on the do you want me to pause or I, I, I um, like about the yeah I mean first
1: yeah I I think that was a very good assessment. Um, I because I think a lot of people haven't really thought about what this means in the context of what was happening with the reasonableness clause and I think the next people uh, BB was turning his head to was largely the the military apparatus. I think he was looking at Hirsi Halavi at David Bernier at uh, Ronan Barr. Um, that the heads of the military security apparatus were quite against his agenda. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's going to be a big blame game after all this. And I mean, I, I think it will have huge implications for the future of Israeli democracy. And I mean, hopefully, BB's side will um, maybe not come out on top of that. Um, so I, I think it was interesting that you went on that. on, And I think the Palestinian side will be very interesting to explore too. I mean, I, I think this might be the end of the, Palestinian Authority, um, which might be a bold claim, but I've seen these big protests in, in Jenin and and yes. even Ramallah. And I, I think live ammunition was fired and they're already very unpopular. And it's it's hard for me to see how the Palestinian Authority comes out of this um as something more than just being viewed as a a a, a puppet. Um I, I wonder if you have a similar assessment.
2: So uh, absolutely Diego, you know the political scene very well. Um So, you know, let's talk about the Palestinian uh, context. Um, uh, Before, again, we'll start with the before uh, uh, this attack. So before this uh, attack, when I, you know, would try to explain when I teach about this conflict, I try to teach about Palestinian politics and society. I usually say, you know, um, many Palestinians that I know say that, you know, they have three governments. None of them are elected and they hate them all. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and it's a good, you know, it's a nice joke, but it's a horrible, it's a horrible feeling that their lives are controlled uh, by three different parties that they feel in varying degrees and for various reasons, uh, you know, that they didn't choose. They don't have an, any influence over uh, and they don't like and none of them are, 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 are you know, helping most of the Palestinian population uh, or, or really representing their interests or goals um so uh one of those is of course Hamas which has been ruling Gaza since it expelled the Palestinian Authority in 2007. One of those is the Palestinian Authority that has uh you know uh, civil control uh uh, and military you know or whatever security so policing control over uh 18 percent of the West Bank uh uh albeit in all in Separate islands of territory around the major Palestinian c- cities, uh, and then another twenty-four percent has civilian, you know, c- civilian control. So it it has, you know, control uh, uh, to to some degree of the lives of most of the Palestinian population of the West Bank, uh, but not of the territory which Israel controls. Uh, 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 and Israel controls, you know, about sixty percent of the West Bank, including all the settlements, the major roads, uh, and the area in between the Palestinian cities. Um, uh, so, uh, but the Palestinian authority, uh, you know, which is the Fatah party, the uh, Yasser Arafat's party, the party that the world recognized since the, you know, since, uh, uh, the early 1970s as quote unquote, the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Um, so that party, uh, which was dominant in Palestinian politics for many years, uh, you know, found its first serious challenger in Hamas um, uh, and they represent very different uh, nationalisms. Fatah represents a sort of classic, uh, uh, you know, secular might be the wrong word, but certainly not not religious in an ideological sense, uh, you know, traditional uh, Arab nationalist uh, uh, party um, uh, seeking to establish a Palestinian state. Since, you know, 1988 to 1993 uh, or so, you know, Fatah has recognized the UN resolutions 242 and 338 and therefore recognized the existence of Israel uh, on 78% of the territory, meaning the not, not, and, and has, you know, declared essentially that its objective is a Palestinian state in the 1967 occupied territories, East Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza Strip um uh Hamas has never agreed to that uh, Hamas's you know goal is the establishment of a is- Islamist Palestinian state on 100% of the territory of Mandate Palestine um uh but Fatah was the dominant party uh it remains the dominant party in terms of its institutional control uh in the West Bank uh and in terms of its international status uh as the PLO um however uh you know it's as you said become increasingly repressive it has not held an election since 2006 uh it uh uh and and it is seen as corrupt uh its leaders are largely very old mahmoud abbas uh is i believe 87
1: he is 87 yeah
2: um uh so uh, uh it is in no way uh, a popularly supported authority or government at this time um and hamas uh hamas's goal has been to undermine the palestinian authority and to become the undisputed uh you know leaders of the palestinian national movement uh and you know hamas will make its case on this on this attack And we'll say, you know, the resistance, as they call themselves, uh, has, you know, inflicted, uh, you know, uh, uh, just revenge on, uh, you know, the occupier, the occupiers, the Zionists. um, uh, And, uh, you know, and, and is more effective than the Fatah approach of negotiating with Israel when Israel is, you know, has moved so far to the right and has expanded settlements uh, in the West Bank, and has you know prevented a real Palestinian state from even being a, a feasible possibility in the eyes of most people. Um, so Hamas, uh, you know, will see this as a tremendous uh, achievement, and I think Hamas will also see a, a, a surge in popularity among a portion of the Palestinian public. I think when when you look at Palestinian public opinion polls, you get about thirty, you know. Twenty-five to thirty percent, I'd say, Hamas, you know, supporters. You also get uh, probably thirty to thirty-five percent at this point, Fatah supporters, loyal, you know, identify as Fatahawi, as like, you know, this is Fatah is my, my movement. Um, you would have had more in the past, uh, and uh, and you get an increasing amount, sometimes larger uh that say none of you know none of the above.
1: And um, I think that's kind of manifesting itself in the formation of these new militias like the lines then in yes. and Al- that aren't very ideologically aligned. Yeah.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um uh, uh, absolutely. So Palestinian Authority has been fragile uh for a long time, you know, for for years, with no prospect of uh, you know, getting anything significant in negotiations with Israel. Uh, and, uh, you know, with Hamas, uh, you know, touting itself as the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the classic, you know, revolution until victory, we are the party of resistance. We, you know, continue to fight the war against Israel. Um, I, you know, it, it's, it, it's become very fragile. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you said, uh, there were demonstrations against, the authority in the streets uh yesterday and i saw i saw in the center of ramallah which is the capital uh you know it's the de facto capital and it's it's the place where the authority is strongest um uh you know so there were big demonstrations and they were using the classic chant from the arab spring you know the people want the fall of the regime um and uh so this is, the, the, this. the you know, I've been wondering for a while what's going to happen. I mean, I thought maybe Mah- Mahmoud Abbas will die. He's 87. Uh, not, I don't wish anything ill on anyone. Uh, uh, will resign uh, because he has a stressful job and, you know, maybe he doesn't want to live the rest of his life uh, like that when there's no prospects of anything good happening. Um, uh, you know, or he will be overthrown because maybe people will get fed up uh, and, and there will be uh, a, a rebellion uh, uh, against the Palestinian Authority and against Abbas's leadership. Uh, he was elected in 2005, but that was 18 years ago. So an entire generation of people has grown up and is now voting age, but has, there has never been an election. Um, uh, but in any case, you know, no one knows what happens after Abbas. Uh, it's assumed that they will try to pass power to one of his closer uh, supporters, but there's no one who really has a popular following. There's no one who has much legitimacy among the Palestinian public. The only Fatah leader who really has popular support is Marwan Barghouti, who is serving life sentences in Israeli prison because he was part of uh, uh, orchestrating suicide attacks against Israel during the Second Intifada, so he's the. He, he, when you look at Palestinian election polling before this attack, uh, uh, you know it, they would say if there was a presidential election between Ismail Haniya from Hamas and Mahmoud Abbas from Fatah, who would you vote for? So these changed, you know, over the years, but there's been a very strong pattern recently. Ismail Haniyeh and Hamas wins, defeats Mahmoud Abbas in head-to-head presidential voting. Um, And that's been a pretty sustained pattern in the last few years. Um, However, if you ask if the election is between Marwan Barghouti of Fatah and Ismail Haniyeh of Hamas, Marwan Barghouti actually wins. And more people say they would vote for him. And that is one of Hamas's, I mean, Hamas's sort of glaring weakness in terms of its bid to become the leadership of the Palestinian national movement is that the majority of the public are not Islamist. And they don't want to live in that kind of Palestinian state. Uh, that That is, a, I, I would say that is its largest weakness, and it it is not a majority party. Its ideology does not represent the majority of the Palestinians. There are some Palestinians who support Hamas because they believe in, vi- you know, the violent uh, uh, resistance, quote unquote, uh, uh, you know, or they don't like the idea of the two-state solution. They don't like the idea of negotiating with Israel. So there are some people who are sympathetic to Hamas for that reason, but even many of them really wouldn't want to live under a Hamas-style government. Uh, so that, I, I'd say that's its largest uh, uh, w- weakness. Um, uh, and also the longer it's held power in Gaza, uh, you know, it, it used to have a strong card that uh, the Fatah and Palestinian Authority were viewed as corrupt. You know, only, only their cronies get jobs, get money, you know, you have to pay them off. That You know, they were viewed widely as being corrupt. They're still viewed widely as being corrupt. Hamas won an election in 2006, and part of its win was the sense that you know they're not corrupt, they're straightforward. I don't necessarily agree with their ideology, but at least they're not stealing you know stealing money from the people. But you know, 16 years after they took over Gaza forcibly and and drove the Palestinian Authority out, I think a, the same percentage of Palestinians thinks Hamas is corrupt, uh, including in Gaza. When they take po- public opinion in Gaza polls. know, many, many people say Hamas is corrupt. So Hamas no longer longer has that, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of appeal. Um, And the question then is, you know, what about this attack? In previous times when Hamas has, you know, engaged in, uh, you know, a, a war with Israel or launched, you know, launched thousands of missiles on Israel, and then Israel has, you know, done airstrikes or, or attacked Gaza and killed, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of Palestinians or sometimes more than two thousand Palestinians. Um, Hamas would usually see a spike in popularity, uh, you know, sort of in the immediate aftermath or or during the time of the conflict. But then, after a couple months. When the devastation in Gaza, you know, became apparent, when nothing really changed, Hamas's popularity would 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 go back down again. Um, so that's that's a question. I I imagine that their popularity will go up as a result of this attack. Uh, uh, because there's a portion of the Palestinian public that's just, you know, so, uh, angry at, uh, at Israel for the occupation for all the, you know, for, for everything that, uh, they, you know, identify with this kind of attack. Now, I want, I want to be clear. I know many Palestinians, and I know there are many Palestinians who are also horrified by what Hamas has done in this case, and maybe more so than ever, um, uh, uh, But, uh, you know, but just speaking in terms of political analysis, probably their numbers will go up uh, for initially. But whether that will be sustained, I don't know, because the devastation that this creates uh, for Palestinian ordinary Palestinians in Gaza is so, you know, so tremendous. Uh, And, uh, you know. I guess in part it will also depend on the results, the the results of the war. That we really just don't know. But I would just say that Palestinian politics, we we really didn't know what was going to happen next in Palestinian politics anyway. I've been saying that for years. You know what happens after Abbas? We don't know. We still don't know that. But now we're probably much closer to the tipping point.
1: Right. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I on on one hand, what well, we have seen. Um pro-hamas rallies and there was a big one in nablus um our our recent guest avi melamed who used to be in israeli intelligence made an interesting point on his twitter that um i think he was referring to hamas's brutal treatment of fatah and other things they've done that there are a lot of people in gaza kind of waiting in the corner for hamas to fall quietly so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens and now for for the rest of the interview um i mean we have gone um uh, it's it's been a uh, we, we have been pretty lengthy so far, which I think is good because you've covered a lot of good things. But for the sake of your own time, uh, I'm kind of just wondering, maybe um, I, I would like to ask a question about um, the prospect of a ground invasion of Gaza. Um, and if we have time after that, if we don't, it's OK. If we have time, I would um, like to see if you think there's any sort of like what can be done for peace in the future. Um, and th- that's kind of what I'm thinking to do for the rest of it, if that's okay with you.
2: Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, the first question is a very, uh, a very difficult one. Uh, the first question that you asked was about a, a ground
1: invasion. Yeah. Um, Cause from, um, what I'm thinking is from my perspective, after seeing what Hamas did, and I mean, the, the only way I could really describe that it was like genocidal. It was like, Extremely. I think this is technically co-
2: this is technically correct under
1: international it law. was the, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, I believe. And I I don't see a way in which Hamas and peace can coexist. And I personally think that Israel is justified in pursuing a ground invasion and dismantling Hamas in Gaza. However, I I am opposed to the mass bombing campaign that was conducted because I um I mean seeing Yov Galan's statements before that makes me feel like it might have been motivated by headed emotions, which I think is a Mm. very human thing, Um, but it it seems to get killed a lot of civilians and didn't really accomplish much. Um, And of course, a ground invasion is going to be quite costly, but I also feel like it's, I think Hamas has to go after this. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on this. So,
2: I mean, you know, you've articulated things very, very well, Um, and, uh, you know, this the the you know the entire situation is so far away from let's say you know I you know I, I worked for Seeds of Peace for many years I teach peace and conflict resolution uh, I have hundreds of Israeli and Palestinian friends I have family in Israel I care deeply about uh, you know uh, uh, Israel I don't think that you can care about Israel without caring about the Palestinians I think that's is you know completely uh, uh, myopic thing if you do um because only if the palestinians uh you know uh, can find uh, uh ways of uh you know feeling that they live you know safely you know with chances at prosperity and peace and expression of their identity and self determination well, do i you know i think that's the only way for israel to uh, achieve a greater degree of uh, of peace um and uh, it's something that i've dreamed of and worked for uh uh, you know, so uh, you know, this situation is so far away from any of that that uh first of all, I think it's just important to say that, um uh, you know, in this question of whether or not uh, there should be aerial bomb bombardment and whether or not there should be a ground invasion. first of all, it it isn't the question that I wanted to be asking because if you were asking me what I want or hope for, the answer would be none of the above. Um, and, uh, so I, I do just want to say that very clearly, um, and, uh, then I think also, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, a, an analyst of what's happening in the region, uh, and just as a person trying to be forthright, you know, we have to deal with reality as it is, and we have to, uh, we can, we should, you know, I can't run away from the responsibility uh, you know, I, uh, you know, a, a friend asked me, you know, uh, 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 about this, you know, on 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 Facebook. I think I may have posted something, uh, uh, you know, and they, you know, uh, they said, well, you know, what would you do if you were the prime minister? So I, I, first, I laughed. I said, you know, no one with my views could possibly be elected prime minister. Um, But let's say there was a utopian world in which someone like me could be elected prime minister. You know, I still have to answer the question. You know, I have to be honest. Um, uh, And that's very pain. It's very painful because the things that I'm talking about are quite likely, if not inevitable, to lead to the deaths and harm of people that I know. or, Or their families, their family members. Palestinians in Gaza, Israelis who will be, you know, called up, who have already been called up and mobilized to fight in the war, uh, and possibly Israelis who will be attacked by Hamas in other ways. So it, it gives it, it gives me only sorrow, really, to, to talk about this question. And nonetheless, that is the question we have to answer. All right. Sorry for that very long uh, introduction. Um, I certainly believe. and i've I've read a lot now. I've read things by other people, Israeli peace activists uh, who've spent their entire lives uh, you know, working to avoid this kind of situation and prevent it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, one of them, Gershon Baskin, someone who's conducted dialogues with Hamas leaders. Uh, uh, he's been working for peace since you know the first Intifada he said you know this is just this has you know completely shifted uh uh the paradigm after what hamas has done it is no longer possible for me to think of uh you know hamas as being fit to govern gaza uh, and to maintain control of territory and to maintain military capabilities uh uh you know uh and I I think that that is, you know, that's correct. Hamas had had agency here; they 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 had strategic choices. Hamas had an incredible success from its point of view. It broke through the Israeli defenses. It surprised Israel. It you know, and Hamas could have broken through and only attacked military targets. You know, I myself personally, I know I have many friends who have served or or serve in the Israeli military. I don't want anyone to be killed in this conflict. It's not what I'm for. But many people in the world would say it is legitimate for Hamas to attack Israeli military targets because, you know, they see Israel as blockading Gaza, occupying the West Bank, etc. Um, and, and so they would say this is legitimate. Uh, Hamas could have done that and 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 scored an incredible strategic success from its point of view without harming a single israeli civilian that is that it, it absolutely it had the freedom to do that it had the and that it, you know that that's the, it's an important thing to emphasize you have to stare this in the face thousands of hamas fighters and islamic shihad fighters took that opportunity to murder people in their homes. And as you said, that is, first of all, that is probably genocide under definitions in international law. Even if it's not, you know, it doesn't that, that, that sort of doesn't matter that much. That's just a word people like to throw around at this point. Uh that is no longer, you know there's no government in the world that could not respond with whatever force it can to an attack like that and that is very clear and it's resulted in unprecedented support at least at the level of state governments in the west for israel governments that previously were very critical of israel of the occupation of the policy towards gaza etc are now very clearly affirming it's it's you know right and duty to uh, respond to that. And I wholeheartedly agree. There is no state that would tolerate uh, uh, an actor of that kind, uh, you know, building up an arsenal and controlling territory on its border. Um, uh, Now, the question is, what? And it's a series of very bad choices because of the nature of the Gaza Strip and the fact that there are two million people living in this densely populated area. Uh, Egypt doesn't want them, you know, pouring in as refugees. Israel doesn't want them pouring in as refugees. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, and Hamas builds all of its tunnels and command headquarters and arsenal and everything among the civilian population deliberately. Of course, you can say there's not a lot of space there. It's just 21, 21 miles by five miles. That's true. On the other hand, there is agency there. They're in control of the territory. They can tell people to move because they're building, you know, they're hiding some missiles here or they're building something here that they, you know, they know Israel will want to strike. They don't do that. And the reason they don't do it is because it makes all of these choices incredibly uh, painful and ugly. Uh, and difficult. So you mentioned about the aerial bombing campaign. We know that it's killed more than 2,500, maybe it's getting close to 3,000 Palestinians. We have no way to know how many of those are Hamas combatants or civilians, but we know that many of them are civilians. Uh, A ground invasion. So the aerial bombing campaign can do that. It can do you know, cause devastation, it can destroy buildings, destroy infrastructure, it can kill many people. Um, but it hasn't removed Hamas, and it it won't. There have been aerial bombing campaigns before. In order to do that, Israel will, will as far as I can tell, need to invade. Uh, and that is not, you know, I've now read some very intelligent pieces by people who are probably smarter than me uh, saying not to invade, that this will be, a, so Mark Lynch, uh, at, uh, GW has written one, uh, someone named Alan Johnson, uh, has written, you know, he's, a, he's, he's, a, uh, you know, more sympathetic to Israel than Mark Lynch, uh, but he also has written, he said he thinks a ground invasion will be a disaster and will be contrary to Israel's interest. Um, so the reasons that a ground invasion. Uh, uh, you know they are very they're quite real. Hamas has been preparing. Hamas obviously knew that it would probably trigger a ground invasion by launching such a massive attack on Israel, and that may be their goal. Uh, so they're prepared to inflict heavy casualties uh, on the Israeli army, which both bolsters their image as an effective resistance. Uh, uh, organization in Palestinian eyes, and also just again causes more death and uh, and mourning uh, uh, and loss uh, for Israel, and loss of deterrence. Also, um, uh, there will be many civilian casualties, although that is true of all of Israel's military options in Gaza. Uh, and the, maybe the most uh, you know negative is that. Let's say Israel succeeds. if it, it you know essentially removes Hamas from power. it makes Hamas no longer able to effectively be the governing power in Gaza or constitute a major military threat to Israel. At that point, Israel has reoccupied the Gaza Strip with two million Palestinians. In 2005, 18 years ago, Israel deoccupied the Gaza Strip. Because it had occupied the Gaza Strip since 1967, and that had been such a catastrophic situation. And at the time in 2005, that was a very popular move in Israel. Israelis don't; the majority of Israelis want nothing to do with Gaza. Uh, and so, and and of course, in many ways, for Hamas, that situation might be more comfortable. Returning to being an insurgent group fighting against an occupying power. That's maybe we would say their wheelhouse. Being the government of Gaza actually maybe hasn't been so great because at different times, you know, they have been subject to people who are discontent because their lives are not good. And yes, they blame Israel, but they don't only blame Israel. So in many ways, you know, there are multiple negative repercussions of a ground invasion. On the other hand, and again, I am not a military expert. I don't see how you remove Hamas from power without doing that. Uh, if there is another way, that is wonderful, and I would take it. Um, but I don't know what that other way is. Um, and. Uh, yeah and and you know, and I don't think that tolerating this you know returning to the status quo, I certainly think from from an Israeli perspective, that is also an intolerable outcome. There are many other things we don't know. We don't know uh, if Hezbollah will launch an attack on Israel. And Hezbollah is much more powerful than Hamas, at least that's what we've been told. So that will change. that will alter. That will alter things very significantly, uh, and I imagine that you know in the discussions between Biden and the American team and the Israelis right now, and in the discussions within Israeli leadership, uh, you know those those conversations are uh, you know the the what 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 are being talked about right now. So I I agree with you. I, I think that there is. Uh, you know, there, there are very strong reasons why some kind of ground invasion would seem necessary or warranted, uh, uh, though it comes with many risks. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, again, I if people have an alternative that doesn't just leave Hamas, you know, in power, having done what they did, uh, then you know, I would certainly, uh, you know, want to hear that alternative.
1: And I guess to wrap it up, my my last question would be, from from the perspective of someone involved in peacebuilding process, I mean, what yeah. what do we do from here? Because in in my time, um, just studying about conflict resolution and going to different societies, experiencing ethnic conflicts that have experienced it i don't know if i've seen a situation as bad as this since maybe mm-hmm. like the balkans or like the russia or something and i don't like i don't really know um what you do from here and even the, the balkans is a bit different because i think daytona was kind of like the the first they the, the their peace building process kind of works um not perfectly but in in the sense that it kind of ended up eventually um, reducing ethnic like violent ethnic conflicts right. in the region, um, whereas in Israel they they tried that and it didn't work and things have gotten worse. So I'm wondering what what do you do from here? Right, I said Dayton. I meant Dayton. Dayton.
2: Yeah, the Dayton Accords. Yes, no, that's excellent. Thank you for uh, for bringing that up. So, I um, uh, the. You know, I think it's very good to look at, you know, other examples uh, of uh, uh, conflicts that have some, you know, analogies to this conflict. Of course, they're all very different and it's not, you know, you can't like take a solution from one and, you know, transfer it to the other. But you can at least look at other cases. So right now we're again now we're in the in the middle of the worst uh, bloodbath. Uh, that has you know happened between Israelis and Palestinians. It's even worse than the second Intifada already. Um, we also talked about the weakness of Palestinian uh, uh, governance uh, and institutions, and the lack of legitimacy of the two major parties. Uh, you know, and when I say that you know more people prefer none of the above, like Palestinians, the problem is that none of the above doesn't. That's not a movement. That's not and that's not doesn't have institutions. That doesn't have an ideology. That doesn't, that's not able to take over a government uh, and create a you know a, an effective system. Uh, you know, and that's what we saw in the Arab Spring, unfortunately. You know, Mubarak corrupt autocratic government. There's an inspirational movement, popular movement, uh, demonstrations sustained that eventually leads to Mubarak leaving power. Um, and a lot of that movement is led by people who are liberal, who are fighting for democracy, who want a democratic government, but they are only a small part of the population and they are not a strong, organized political movement. They don't have the numbers. They don't have the institutions. They don't have all kinds of things. So when there are elections, they don't win the election. The election is won by the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a movement with a strong ideology, with very large institutions, with powerful uh, international backing and resources. Uh, That's who has a coherent political program that they can impose. So in Palestine, again, there's all these none of the above people. And maybe, uh, maybe leaders will emerge. Maybe these things will emerge over time, but they aren't there now. You have two groups that are organized political movements that can, you know, contest. And those are Fatah and Hamas, even if most people don't want either of them at this point. Um, so that's a very that's a that's a vacuum. That's a that's a really, you know, that's the glaring weakness, I would say. Um, uh, so, you know, what happens? Next, we really can't say because we just don't know what is going to be the Palestinian uh, political scene uh, after this. Here's what I would say when you bring up the other the other examples. Um, you know, the best case scenario, I think right now, I'm not talking for the long term, would be if somehow this conflict could go from being brutal violent powder keg a volcano that can explode any time and claim thousands of lives to something like you know a frozen conflict like the balkans or cyprus uh uh you know uh nobody's happy with the situations there you don't hear anything glowing about the dayton accords you know cyprus they never negotiate a peace treaty. Nobody's happy about how things are. It's not in any way an ideal, but the violence has is either completely over or is at a very, very, very low level. And when, you know, in the bulk case, the Balkans from genocidal levels of violence to very little violence. Northern Ireland is another example. That might be the best case scenario, but I think the, the problem with that is that Northern Ireland uh, exists in a peaceful and prosperous, affluent region of the world, and has no outside parties in any way that support conflict. Uh, so that's that. That's one of its great advantages. That's not to take away from the depth of the conflict there, which I know Diego knows well. Uh, which once you start to study it, you you know you you realize that this that conflict was every bit as hateful uh, uh, and and ugly and violent. As anywhere else in the world, um, but uh, but it's just in a better region. The Middle East is not a region like that, and there are very powerful, you know, outside powers uh, uh, that do not want to see this conflict resolved and want to see it remain on a uh, you know essentially a zero sum uh, war uh, between national movements that don't you know it's either one or the other, uh, and and we're backing you know so so that makes it harder. Uh, but the, the best case scenario would be, I think, some you know to 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 reach that level where at least uh, you know violence was low uh, and there was to do that you're going to have to create some kind of you know Palestinian political uh, uh, expression, self determination, government. Uh, you, you have to do that, and what we've now seen is that really can't be Hamas, which is one of the two. Options and maybe the more popular option in a small, you know, in a certain way at this point. So you know, uh, it's it's very difficult. Um, In the Israeli scene, I'd say there are contradictory—not contradictory, but there are two different responses to massive escalations like this. You saw this also in the Second Intifada. On the one hand, uh, you know, far the, the far right can be strengthened. Uh, And certainly feelings of hate and anger and distrust rise astronomically. Uh, And Israelis will say, well, certainly we can't ever have peace with them. But there's another response as well, which could be conducive at least to a sort of separation. Which is that Israelis also, when this kind of thing happens, feel like we don't want to live with them. So, and we don't want to be in Gaza, and we don't want to be in the West Bank. And, you know, there is a portion of Israeli society for whom the West Bank is sacred territory and is ideologically important. And that's a power, it's a powerful minority, but it is a minority. For now, you know, that may change in the future. Uh, You know, so... The second intifada was horrible, destroyed Israelis' trust. Nobody voted for left-wing parties anymore. They didn't think peace is possible. But there were serious negotiations right after that. There was a withdrawal from Gaza. It was very popular. Ariel Sharon then ran an election on a program saying, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to unilaterally withdraw from 90% of the West Bank. Our border is going to be the separation barrier. They won that election resoundingly. Ariel Sharon died of a stroke. and so they didn't even have his sort of you know charisma, if you know you can say that. Uh, uh, they you know Ehud Olmert, who's not a very charismatic or popular leader, still won the election resoundingly on that political platform saying, I'm going to withdraw unilaterally from ninety percent of the West Bank wins the election so that shows that that response also it's not because he didn't say i'm going to make peace he just said i'm going to get us out of sort of war i'm going to get us out of the business of you know personally patrolling and occupying the palestinians that was popular uh it wasn't out of peaceful feelings it was probably more out of like we want nothing to do with these people in those places anymore um Uh, uh, but the, you know, unfortunately in conflicts like this, you know, that sometimes that is at least a way to prevent this, you know, these massive, uh, periods of, of killing. Um, uh, if it's not a resolution of the problem, uh, you know, but it is a, I would certainly say it is a preferable state and it creates conditions where maybe in the future, uh, you know, more significant resolution uh, would be possible. So I don't know what the long-term fallout of this is. And I don't, I don't you know, uh, it, it, may go, it may go in unexpected directions. It will remove, I think it will remove, at least for a time, Netanyahu uh, and the current government. And that allows for some possibilities. It will also make it clear to many in Israel That they cannot ignore the Palestinian issue. And that, you know, the idea that the status quo is is tenable and is comfortable and is tolerable should have been smashed now. Uh, So there will be some in the Israeli public and leadership who will who will, you know, their their conclusion from this will be we need to do, we need actually we need to do something. Uh, Whereas for 20 years, it was we don't know what to do. So we're just going to leave, you know, leave the status quo as is. Uh, But the the lack of clarity right now on what will be the next, you know, sort of development in Palestinian politics, I think that is that that's really a critical aspect. And that's one that I unfortunately cannot predict and don't uh, don't think that I know the answer to.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And I mean, I, I say this at the end of every interview, but I think it's especially true here that there's just so much more that could be talked about with this issue. But I think because of time constraints, um, and I think we've also covered all the essentials and a lot of good ground. And I, I think we'll have to probably end the interview here. But I mean, thank you so much for coming on. And I mean, I, I know this took a long time, so I, I really appreciate you being willing to to take the
0: time to discuss this.